This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in little doses from some of the most creative thinkers in the world. On the Think Again podcast, we step outside of our comfort zone, surprising myself and my guests with unexpected interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. This is the third of three so far, mixtapes of my favorite moments from the first year of the show. We're 62 episodes deep, and it's a good time for us to, for me particularly, to take a look back at where we started and what's happened along the way. Take stock before we move into this next season of the show. So the first clip I want to share with you today is in every show, I in the beginning of the show, I sit down and just talk about whatever project the guest is currently working on, and I try to prepare some questions about their life and work that are gonna take us in interesting directions. This clip is from Ethan Hawke, the actor and director uh, and writer. In this case, it's about a book that he wrote, which I talk about in a minute. I found this conversation, particularly the part where he talks about fatherhood, extremely moving personally and just in general I found him to be an incredibly warm and engaged passionate presence uh, I really enjoyed this conversation today I'm very very psyched to be sitting here with actor director and author Ethan Hawke after his breakout roles in Dead Poets Society and Reality Bites he's followed his own path as an artist starting a theater company, writing two novels, acting in decade-spanning film productions directed by Richard Linklater, including most recently The Amazing Boyhood. Uh, now he's about to publish his, in just a few days, his first graphic novel, which he wrote with artist Greg Ruth. Inde, it's called, A Story of the Apache Wars, and it is really, really moving and powerful. Welcome to Think Again, Ethan. Thanks for having me here. I think I want to start by asking you a little bit about Inde. Um, you know, you talk about it in the afterword to the story, but our listeners haven't necessarily read that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> why, why, why this story? Why now? You've written about the Apache Wars, which is not a subject that I think a lot of uh, people associate me with. <laughs> a that, a that, and B like a lot of yeah, just like I don't know, modern media listeners might have thought about recently. You know, how, how, well, why that now? You know, a few years ago. Let me try to figure out, I don't know even where to, it's one of those stories I don't know how to begin. It's something I've been thinking and dreaming about for so long. But 
I read a book called Once They Move Like the Wind by David Roberts. Okay. And it's one of those books that like you read and your hands start to shake. And his writing is very beautiful, but his historical work is incredible. And he really, part of the problem with First Nation history from the white perspective is that white people were originally so unconcerned with it. And they weren't, you know, they weren't writing the history themselves, you know, they had a different culture of oral history and, and white people weren't interested in it and they didn't write it down. So the accounts vary wildly and there's so much white guilt about the story. I mean, like, right. for example, I find it very interesting, like if I say to somebody, you know who Geronimo is? They go, oh yeah. I say, what do you know about him? Not much. Nothing. Right? Yeah, right. And, and you go, well, do you want to know? And they go, is it going to be like really sad? You, you know, that's their first, their first thought is like, ah, uh, I don't think I do want to hear that because I think it's going to make me feel horrible. Can't really process this because we've, we've pretty much dealt with that anyway already. Yeah. yeah and right. so what's happened is the story doesn't get told, Yeah. you know? And I felt that it would be so awesome if there was kind of like a hole in cinema where, you know, there's amazing movies about the Holocaust. There's amazing pieces about what happened in Russia. There's amazing art made about slavery, a lot of the right. great crimes, human crimes. But there's this kind of hole where the Native American experience has not been talked about in cinema. This is where I was coming from, you know. And, you know, Marlon Brando very famously died on that, impaled himself on that cross. Lots of people have tried to do it. And, and every now and then, you know, Dances with Wolves comes out. But it does star Kevin Costner, and it's much more about his character than right. anybody else's. And the Native experience is more reminiscent of uh, Buddhist monks than it is of tribal culture. Yeah, we right? either like romanticize it yeah, or, or, ignore or, it. or ignore it. Or, you yeah. know, or there you have the hallmark vision of the Indian crying and looking at the highway or something right, like right, that. Right. And, um, it's been wonderful if you read Sherman Alexei or Joseph Boyden's. There's a lot of First Nation people who are doing great writing themselves and everything. But as far as history is concerned, I thought it'd be amazing to make a movie about Geronimo. And I thought he was a perfect figure because he's a little bit of a Richard III figure. He gets around feeling guilty about because he was a vicious warrior. Yeah. You know? He's a really complicated person with good and bad qualities, and I thought he makes for a very human Shakespearean hero. And if I may interrupt, in the book, please you, in, the, in, in the book, you um, you basically talk about how Geronimo more or less died when his family was massacred by, and I don't really understand, Mexican, like was it a different tribe of native Mexicans? Like I don't even know the history of these wars. Well, what, what's so kind of fascinating to me about it is, you know, first of all, a lot of white people assume that you, the Apache War with the Mexicans was equally vicious and terrible. I mean, the, and so Geronimo's family was killed by Mexican soldiers. It's like Just Spanish marauding. descendants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You know, uh, Mexican cavalry, Spanish descendants, exactly. They're right. coming, and they would just do these raids, and they killed his mother and his wife and his three children, and he was probably 20, you, you know? And it was a defining event of his life, and it's when I first heard this story is what made me want to tell this story is he was it's in his autobiography he wrote a letter to Teddy Roosevelt asking for the rights of the Apaches to be moved back for their reservation to be moved back to New Mexico Arizona okay. which failed but in the, the letter is very beautiful and he describes this moment in his life where he found his family killed and a hawk appeared to him and this hawk told him as he was grieving you know that he could never be killed that he was going to have a power and that 
bullets couldn't kill him. No man could ever kill him. And he thought that this was a great blessing. And what ended up happening was that it was a huge curse because he outlived not just everybody he loved, but he outlived everything he loved. He outlived his whole way of life. And this is a guy who claims right. probably didn't see a white person until he was close to 30. And by the time he died, you know, he's, he was in Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural parade. I mean, he, he went to the 1901 World's Fair. It's, it's unimaginable it's un to it, think like what it would be to see your entire civilization more or less exterminated. It, it's, it's so hard to think about. But he was there in the World's Fair as the human being with the most gunshot wounds. He's, he had apparently like 47 <laughs> gunshot wounds. Right? So he couldn't be killed. So he, he was like Rasputin. Kind he of was. And, you know, and, and really, it's, it's very poetic. And, you know, he, he died drinking himself to death, you know? You know, just fell off his horse in a snowstorm in a reservation by Fort Sill. And I found that story very, very moving and very Shakespearean. And and I set about trying to write a script about it and right. trying to make a movie. And I could never get the movie made. And, and one day I was buying my son graphic novels because he was really into them. And I started thinking like, wow, maybe this is, I'm in the wrong form. <laughs> this artist, Greg Ruth, had done Conan, Born on the Battlefield. And I asked Greg to meet me. And he said, basically, look, if you want to do storyboard for your movie, drop dead. Right. <laughs> if, if you believe in the graphic novel, in the form, and you want to rewrite this idea with me, then um, I would love to do that. Mm. And I said, hell yeah. And we embarked on this, and I'm really, really proud of it. And Greg's work is just mind-blowing. He, he, he's, uh, he's yeah, very, yeah, very I, beautiful. I, I can attest to that, having read this. I mean, it's a it's the, the art very is exquisite, moving yeah. Yeah, visually, and, and the story as well. But uh, was there anything that you, any understanding you came to in doing the research for and the work on this book, like about that hole in American history, that surprised you or changed your thinking? You just know, whenever we way. start seeing people as other, we're, we just get lost. Uh, you know, when, yeah, yeah. As, as the more you explore in the research, I'm very moved by the humanness of all the story. Right. There are so many decent cowboys trying to do the right thing. And there's so many wonderful, decent First Nation people trying to do the right thing. Right. There were so many liars and cheaters and people trying to get ahead. And so many people who, with short-term goals, screwing everything up. Right. You know, it's, it's the same war. There's something beautiful I find in the Apache creation myth that we start the book with. Right. It's a war between the dark and the light, right? It's so all the yin-yang stuff. Apache creation myth centers on this idea that, that the birds, every morning when you hear them, they're pulling the light. They're pulling the light mm -hmm. into the sky. And every night when those crickets start, it's the insects and the dragons and the lizards and the snakes pulling the dark. Right. And it's this war that happens every day. And the more I came to think about that creation myth, the more I feel it is true. There's just this giant, mysterious force for good and this giant, mysterious force, malevolent force. You know, and they're at pull in each one of us, and they're at pull in our society, right. and they're at pull in our culture, and it's happening all the time, and, and we're all in this dance together is, is kind of how I, I've walked away from feeling about it. Literally every moment of life, like every yeah. interaction you have, everyone every you talk to, right? Yeah, and I think back, you know, as you grow up, I, I have these strange memories that start to come back, like ways that I failed as a young man that I didn't even know, like a day passed. You know, sometimes a day passes and you're furious with yourself for behaving badly or something. Right. I have this memory that's just resurfaced uh, 
about being at a high school dance and this young woman opening up to me about what was happening in her home life and just not being equipped to handle it. <laughs> and I never talked to her again, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I wanted to make out and we started kissing and she started crying and sharing with me about her home life and I didn't know what to do. And I was, wasn't mean to her or anything like that. I, her problems were beyond my... I think it's universally true, though, of young people. You know, like, I too, like, you know, I have... I had a friend that I lost, like, you know, early on, like, 18, 19, and very close friend. And his mom needed me as, like, sort of a second son, you know, after he died. And I could not deal. I just could not deal. And so I never wrote her. I never called her. And then she passed away herself. And now I'm like, yo, there's that train gone. Gone. I know. Yeah. You know, things unsaid, you know, the, the greatest sins are the moments you missed, actually. Right. So you find it in parenting. The weird thing about parenting, I've got four kids, right? You think, you think to yourself, I'm not going to screw up like this, and I'm not going to screw up like this. And you know what? You don't screw up those things. You screw up other <laughs> things you didn't even think about. Of course. That's the weird thing. It's the things you didn't, only now do I go, oh, that would have been a good idea. But if I'd been thinking about it, I would have done it better. How old's your son? My son's 14. You have one child? I have four kids. Four kids. I have three oh. daughters and one son. Um, Father's Day is coming up. I have, oh, a, yeah. I have a kid, too. Um, and I was wondering, because I think it gets at a lot of other stuff, and this is the last thing maybe we'll talk about before we get to the surprise clips, is if you imagine your kids thinking of who you were down the road, what is it you want them to think, you know, like in terms of what you were trying to do you know, your work. I your... honestly feel I would like them to think about me as little as possible. <laughs> that I feel like I want to be a part of their brain trust mm-hmm. and be there for them. I, I honestly have come to believe that our life is our message. That anything you say to them, you know, the cliche of the chain smoking parents saying, whatever you do, don't smoke. Right, 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 right. It's like, you know, people say all the right things. Or Polonius in Hamlet, you know, do this, do Do that. Do this, do that, don't self be true. Great advice, but he doesn't take it for himself, so it's meaningless. That's (laughs) the genius of that speech, you know? And (laughs) and so my hope is that I'm in their DNA in a positive way. I hope that one thing they can see in me is somebody who I have given myself permission to chase my dreams. And that is hard to do. The world makes you feel indolent. They make you feel selfish. They, and you, you have to not be selfish and you have to not be a dilettante. You have to not like, but you can give yourself permission to say, you know what, fuck it. I, I want to be the person I dreamed of being when I was 16. And one thing I love about getting older and, and meeting young people and being around them is feeling their idealism. You know, like if I go look, you know, talk to a class at the University of Northwestern about acting or something, I look at their eyes and their belief in the value of art, you know, their belief in what it means to be an actor. And I think, damn, I better, dude, I got <laughs> to put a little, up. I got to step it up here. Like, because I'm, <laughs> you know, that, that's, I, and that's how you start to learn how young people help older people and older people in turn can help younger people. And we all have something to offer each other. So I hope they're not thinking about me. They're just off there living their life. So Amanda Palmer, who is the guest in the next segment of this mixtape, is an artist who's very hard to pin down. She started out as a living statue working in Cambridge, Massachusetts, standing on a box in a wedding dress and handing people flowers. She has become a kind of icon of 
openness, a spokesperson for trust and crowdsourcing. Um, her book, The Art of Asking, and her TED Talk that inspired it are all about her very unique approach to connecting with fans and putting her trust in strangers, basically, all over the world, which has worked out very, very well for her. Um, I like this conversation because here she has a very surprising and unexpected response to an idea about the internet, something I did not think she was going to say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's take a look at video number three, which is Andrew Keene, who is an author of a book called The Internet is Not the Answer. It's called The Internet Encourages a Pre-Copernican Understanding of the Universe. Let's, uh, I, I'm actually very interested to hear what you think about this, so let's take a minute and watch this. The contemporary internet is based on a fundamental lie. We all are told that it's social. We're all told that it allows connectivity, allows us to create community. But the reverse is actually true. It's atomizing us. It's not creating real community. It's actually separating us from people of different opinions, of different cultures. It's increasingly an echo chamber effect where we're only ever connected with people who agree with us in the first place. But even more troubling, these social networks aren't really social. They're platforms for the self. They're platforms for us to build brands. The clearest manifestation of this is our obsession with the selfie. The selfie becomes the cultural form of the internet. Wherever we go, we picture ourselves in front of mausoleums, in front, as they say in the book, in front of people committing suicide, at Auschwitz, at every imaginable place. In spite of all the bad taste associated with it, we are, in our minds at least, our deluded minds, the center of our universe. I argue again in terms of progress that we've gone back to a, a pre-Copernican understanding of the universe, where everything revolves around us. There's nothing social about that. Now, first of all, before we get into this, in the spirit of transparency, I should say that something unprecedented has happened, which is that my producers, of whom three choose these videos, one of them has chosen a video that I actually saw before and discussed with a guest on this show, and I think it was with A.O. Scott. However, I am so sure that your take on it is going to be radically different from A.O. Scott's. So, take us away, Amanda Palmer. <laughs> uh well, some might expect me to not agree with this guy. I completely agree. His attitude's a little grumpy. But I really, um, I'm really on board with that. The internet as a tool is so potentially progressive and connecting and incredible and amazing, but we <laughs> fumbling, bumbling humans have not managed to harness it 
correctly. And, you know, who could blame us? We're all neurotic and anxious and fucked up. And, of course, it's going to bring out the dark side right. in, in many of us. And So you think, wait, you think sort of more people fuck it up than don't? Well, I don't think it's fair to say people fuck it up. I mean, I think it's sort of like space abhors a vacuum and, and we have this new tool. It is so new and it is so thrilling especially as one who grew up with no internet and no computers, really. Right, um, Certainly no networked computers. It's so thrilling to go, oh my God, the, the universe is in my, my telephone. You know, I can point it to the sky and know it, where the stars are. <laughs> I can talk to anyone across the planet at any time of day and share media and thoughts and feelings. And oh my God, this is just sci-fi incredible advanced next level human ingenuity at its best but <laughs> right. but then you get onto the internet and you're looking at cats on skateboards and you're yeah, like a <laughs> lot of cat lot of cats on skateboards <laughs> and you know i think of the internet a lot like cigarettes <laughs> you look back at the way people were social smoking in the 30s 40s whatever right no one questioned it everybody did it it was in every single social space, on an airplane, in a restaurant, at the family dinner table, cigarettes, cigarettes, everyone was just doing it. And they probably had an inkling that it was bad for them, ish. Right, in spite <laughs> of the advertisements that were like, extra healthful right. cigarette from Charles. Right, <laughs> yes, right. These cigarettes will lower your heart weight. These cigarettes <laughs> right, will right. help with your digestion. These cigarettes, but I mean, you couldn't, be a human being smoking three packs a day yeah. and, and getting to the end of the day and like having your smokers cough and going like, maybe they aren't <laughs> good for me, I don't know, but they're so tasty. And now we look back at that and we think, you know, how could you guys not have known? Right. And I have the feeling that 50 years from now, if we progress as a society, and I am very optimistic and I believe that we will, I think we will look back at our internet usage of 2016 and laugh Dismally, the kind of the same way we look back at, uh, you know, an airplane filled with secondhand smoke and a bunch of babies in whatever, 1965. Yeah. So how do you think the way we use the Internet would ideally change in your optimistic vision of the future? How should we be using it? How will we use it? You know, that's a huge question. I <laughs> okay. I, I mean, you can start I don't want to say I have the answer, but, yeah. but I know a few of the ingredients that would need to go into making the internet serve us better. The thing I worry most with the internet, at the end of the day, the internet is basically just gonna be owned by Disney World. Yeah, Slash yeah, yeah. Google, slash sure. Facebook. Like everything and else. And there's not yeah. gonna be an internet. You know, there is going to be a exponential version of Facebook where everything is commercialized, everything is monetized, and we're really, missing out if we do that. Sure. You know, I don't want to be in my 70s and telling my grandchildren, I remember when the internet was just crazy <laughs> and you could just go on it and people had these things called websites, which was just basically anything you could think up and you could just put it on the internet. And I don't want to see these wide-eyed kids be like, wow, that sounds amazing. It, sh it, should, it should come down to a cultural shift in how we use it, not a structural shift well i don't know we this needs to be a three-way with me you and Jeremy <laughs> where we talk about the design of the internet and right. and and when why it's taking us down into the black hole but you know i really do believe that we will learn how to use the internet as more authentic users 
You know, I feel like part of my job as public person slash rock star slash social media user slash fellow at the Harvard Berkman Center, which studies the Internet, is I challenge myself to not present my best self on the Internet because then it is a conversation instead of an exposition. It's a communion instead of a show. My favorite internet moments by far have not been when I have snapped the perfect selfie, but when I have, you know, shared my struggles and felt resonance with my fellow human beings. That's when I feel like the internet is really powerful. And I don't know why it is that so many folks, and I'll put myself along with them, need to be led, but I do appreciate the work that you're doing, in a sense, giving people permission to be themselves out there. Yeah, well, thank you. The next segment is from one of my favorite comedians, Chris Gethard, who is the host of The Chris Gethard Show and who is about to blow up probably in a big way in terms of a couple movies he's in and recent profiles in magazines. He is an incredibly nice guy, and it's very, very important to him to connect in a personal and direct way with his fans. One example that gets a lot of press is that a fan wrote him a long note about the fact that he was considering suicide, that he was at the point of suicide. And Gethard wrote him an incredibly long, detailed, personal response, which he posted publicly on his blog, 7,000 words or something. A very beautiful and moving letter to this fan. So this is an interesting conversation because here Gethard is talking about what's happening at that point in his career where he's starting to gain more and more prominence, become more and more visible, and do things on a bigger and bigger scale. Um, and what happens to that connection with the people that got him there in the first place and who he wants to stay in touch with? Baratunde Thurston. Oh, I know Baratunde. Yeah, he yeah. was on this show a long time ago, too. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, he's a real good dude information overabundance. This is from Ooh. a couple years ago. One of the beautiful things about the internet is that everybody has a voice. And one of the terrible things about the internet is that everybody has a voice. And so sifting through that and finding a way to determine the signal out of all that noise is one of the challenges of our time. It's, it's part of the, the hallmark of shifting from an economy and an ecology of scarcity to one of abundance. There are way too many things. Just like there's too many cereal choices in the grocery store, there's too many videos on YouTube to watch them all. And if you're someone who's pushing stuff out there, you don't have to read all the comments either. In fact, I advise you heavily not to read all the comments. Community is important in a sea of dramatic change where up is down and this is the situation today and that's the situation tomorrow. People cling to names and brands and places that they trust. And trust is important in this world. And so if you're in the business of producing content and information and trying to grab people's attention, the mere act of producing it is not special. Oh great, you're a photographer, you take pictures. So do I. So does everybody with a camera phone. That's no longer special. Building community around that is a little more special because you're not special just because you can make things. Everybody can make things. So what else can you build beyond the raw Thing beyond the bits that you publish. 
there's a lot to think about there. It's also so interesting because I feel like Baratunde is, uh, I first knew him as a stand-up comedian and he's become such a philosopher and thinker and all these other things and it's very cool to see. But it's also, it's so interesting to realize like his background is very similar to my background and my present and uh, how much I agree with so much of what he's saying. As far as that consumption goes, it's really interesting. As my career gains the small amount of momentum that it has, there's this very fine balance where it's like, well, I'm becoming known as someone who is accessible and authentic, but any measure of momentum or size automatically makes me less accessible mm-hmm. and authentic, which is such a balancing act. So like you said, like for me, the big right. one is that when I was like really starting to catch, when I was really starting to be able to, in a succinct way, put out into the world who I was and when people were starting to respond to it, I was able to answer every email. I remember when you used to request a ticket to my show, I would answer the ticket. <laughs> I would answer your email. I'd be like, yeah, here's the address. And I, and I would have people tell me later that's part of what hooked them into the show. Like I remember when the first time I started selling T-shirts related to the Chris Gethard show, yeah. um, you would get an envelope and my it would just be my home address. That was the return address. And like that felt like part of what people locked into. And now for me, as far as information consumption, as someone who makes things, Right. Part of what's heartbreaking is now I get emails and I get Facebook messages multiple times a day, every day, and I just can't answer them. I can't answer them. And I'm at a point where I still generally read them all, <laughs> um, but I can't. I just don't physically have the time to sit down and answer all of them anymore. I, um, I, that I overload don't... he's talking about is very real to me. I understand it. I'm interrupting only because, so Cory Booker, the uh-huh. politician, yeah. was on this show. Oh, wow. And he... That's a get. <laughs> um, he's cool, and his whole thing is availability, right? He was He's worked in Newark for years. He answers tons of people on Twitter, yeah. et cetera. And you just wonder, once it scales up, like once you become the president, for example, like, you know, you can't be... Bob from the neighborhood necessarily anymore. Yeah. You've got suits around you and security and like yeah. for you where you're at right now, like how do you deal with that? Are you just guilty all the time that you can't answer everything? Did, do you just kind of put that in a box? Like what? I did feel bad for a long time, and it's interesting because so much of my audience, I've managed to build like this cult that's very supportive of me, but a lot of it relates to this thing that you referenced before, which was that someone wrote me this letter. Yeah telling me he was feeling suicidal and it was anonymous. And I felt really like bound by honor to answer that. I felt like it wouldn't be, it would be inhumane to ignore that. But it was anonymous, it was sent to me on Tumblr and I just wrote a public response hoping this person would see it. And that sort of gave this separate layer to who I was, to my audience and to people that like I'm not just a comedian but I'm also someone that you can like lean on for support in a personal way. And that led to all these messages, this influx of people contacting me. To this day, it's been years since that went out, but all the time I get people reaching out. And there was a point where it was really like all consuming for me and felt like this massive responsibility. And actually, my friend JD, who's like my closest creative collaborator, sat me down and in a very gentle way, he was like, your job is to make people laugh. It's not to save everybody one by one. You can't do it, you can't do it. It actually really segues so nicely into what Baratunde was saying about community. Because I feel like I would imagine someone like Cory Booker, I can't put words in his mouth, obviously, and he's a much smarter and more accomplished man than I am, but I kind of feel like what the next step becomes is you come to represent something to people, and those people start to find you. 
And then what gets really fascinating and touching is realizing those people actually also find each other. And that becomes something that is so huge and so fascinating to see. It's that I can't answer everybody anymore. I can't answer all the emails. I can't put my home address on the t-shirt orders anymore. It's, right, it would, I'd right. be handing out the location of my, my wife's bedroom to <laughs> thousands of people. Can't do that anymore. And there's a part of me that really waxes nostalgic for the days when it was this intimate personal connection. But now what I can do is sort of monitor and see online, oh, well, the people who like that about me or who identify with that or feel like they need it, I've provided this forum where they can all find each other now. And then they become friends and I see them, I see people start to interact. I see them start to find like, we set up these forums online, we set up a chat room online, we set up a Facebook fan group online, or actually they set it up and I'm able to then monitor it and see them all hanging out and connecting virtually and in real life. I get to see, it's, it's very fun for me to see someone will go on a Facebook group about The Gethard Show Say like, hey, I'm coming from Detroit and I'm flying in and I'm, I'm seeing this show that I've been watching for years. Can anyone let me stay on their couch? And then I see six people go, yeah, of course, stay on my couch. And it's because they all like me. And I would imagine for someone like Cory Booker, there's like a totally different vibe there. But he is this person who I think has become known as very accessible, sort of a progressive crusader, someone who slept outside of housing projects in yep. York, New Jersey to try to draw attention to that. And my guess is that people who look to him and say he's doing things the right way, I'd like to be a part of it, have much less access to him now that he's like a rising United States Senator, but I bet he set a tone and he set some methodologies into action that people want to embrace and that those people have a chance to find each other and create a movement, you know? And for me with comedy, that's been referred to as a cult, certainly not a movement, but what I really like about being a cult figure in the comedy world is that there's certain people who are looking for something that feels outsider or feels outside the mainstream. And just like I found punk rock and said, oh, these are the other people who don't wanna just have stuff shoved down their throat. They wanna make decisions about their entertainment. I feel like I love seeing um, people do that. So I know that's a very, very convoluted answer no, from no, our no, starting no. point. No, I, I, lo I love that. I love that um, to me, communities like that are what the world needs more of and where I get kind of like cynical and embittered is about how like corporate entities are all excited now about community online yeah. and therefore kind of come in and co-opt or yeah. if someone rises to a certain level of prominence the community gets handed off to like people that can then extract value from it you know in yeah, other ways absolutely so like I just think that you know, to whatever extent people can grow and maintain authentic communities like that and then not sell them to somebody, I think yeah. that's really good. And it's very interesting because it's weird, like, <laughs> with Late Night, I'm so obsessed with Late Night and I built my TV show on public access and I had a real chip on my shoulder because I was like, I always felt like Late Night shows, like, I love them, I love them. But I, feel, I always felt like, why do they still have to wear a suit? Why do they still have to tell these topical <laughs> jokes now that The Daily Show exists? People go there for that stuff. Why do they do these bits that just repeat over and over again where you could tell they don't even feel like they like them? And I remember years ago feeling like we started on our show doing so many games, so many things where people played games and they were, we'd use the internet and I was like, well, this will make people feel like they're personally involved. And it means when we have guests, it'll feel like they're entering our world. And I think that was stuff we were doing five or six years ago. And it's proved true. I think Fallon in particular has shown 
that mentality, I was like, right. And now, as someone who's always trying to stay ahead of the curve because I'm not very successful or big, but what I can do is try to always be the most progressive and the smartest about it. What I'm starting to sense is that what people in the future will actually want is something that feels small, something that doesn't right. feel like the whole world has access to it or the whole world knows about it. I think people want to feel, it's very, you know what's very interesting to me to think about a lot is especially with television, I think when we were growing up, there was still regional TV. There was right. still stuff that I only saw in New Jersey and other New Jersey people knew about it. There was this guy, Uncle Floyd, <laughs> and his show was like homemade. It was on like the UHF channels and it was like very, very rough around the edges, but people in New Jersey loved it because it felt like Uncle Floyd was our guy. I know my friend JD, who I mentioned, who's collaborative with me, he grew up outside of Chicago and he remembers Chicagogo, which is this like, show where um, they just play like music and kids could dance on TV and people would show up and do it. And again, such a weird show, but it was theirs. And we had uh, Captain 20, I'm, I'm from DC, like Channel 20 had this dude, Captain 20. Who I've like never heard of, but I bet suit. all, like everyone you grew up with, I bet loves Captain 20. Yeah, he was, he was but he was a weird, anom you know, odd bird, you know, yeah. like for sure, you know. And people have fondness for that. But <laughs> one thing I really think of is the internet's made everything global. Yeah. People can find your work from anywhere in the world. Right. It's very interesting to me because I feel like what's going to start happening more and more is people are going to have this like regionalism or tribalism, tribalism that yeah. it's just you opt into it. It's not defined by where you live. It's defined by who you see yourself as. My guess is that what you'll see from people who are creators is you'll see more people making a modest living and less people making these massive global superstar yeah. livings because people don't, I think young people in particular, want to feel like they have something that's only theirs and is only shared amongst the people they identify with. That's why something like, I'm so fascinated by, is it pronounced Patreon? Yeah, yeah. I'm so fascinated by that, because that to me, as soon as I saw that started to exist, I was like, yep, my, this has been my gut feeling, is that you'll start to be able to have this, where if you can get 400 people to give you $10 a month and you can pay your rent that way, yeah. those 400 people might just support you for your whole life because you're opting into being their person. I'm your guy, I'm your girl. I get who you are and I'm willing to kind of be the point person for a small community. I feel like that's going to become a thing we see more and more of and I'm really fascinated to see exactly how logistically that exists. Yeah, I do hope that that like, is indeed the wave of the future and yeah. how things go overall because yeah, so many things are coming into my mind. Amanda Palmer, um, yeah. you know, she's sort of the poster child for this Patreon uh, yeah. kind of efforts. You Even know? someone I will say, it's weird because it's counterintuitive to what I just said, but I feel like Taylor Swift, who is, I am a 35-year-old man. <laughs> Taylor Swift's not my demographic, but from what I can sense, part of her being a global phenomenon is that actually many people, especially young ladies, are like, she gets it. She gets what my experience was. She's taken that so much further than a lot of people, but I feel like the real template that creators can take away from someone like that is right. If you can be, if you can put on display what's unique about you and attract the people who say that person represents my experience with the world, right? They might just support you. And with the public access show, I found that to be the case for me in a small way, and it was very, very empowering. I felt like when I found the small community that was willing to support me no matter what. It gave me so much freedom and breathing room where like, I haven't been out to pilot season in LA and I'm, a pr I'm an actor. I get my health insurance through the Screen Actors Guild. Right. I haven't auditioned for a pilot in five or six years. And it's because what I know I have is a few circles of, you know, like a very, very dedicated 
hundred or so people and then a few thousand people that are a little less dedicated and then these sort of like ripples out from my work where I know, well, this, as long as this gang supports me, I have the freedom to kind of sneak through the back door and right. not have to do it the traditional way. And that's the most empowering thing as an artist. One of the craziest and most fun episodes of the show ever was with P.F. Tompkins, who is an improv comedian and a voiceover actor. He's in BoJack Horseman. He's got a huge underground following. This episode began with us improvising around the randomly computer-generated words, tiny cosmic threat. And uh, in this part, we talk about a video from Bill Nye, the science guy, and end up singing David Bowie's Space Oddity. Next we have Bill Nye. The science guy? Bill Nye, the science guy. Mm -hmm. And this is a fun series. I have not seen this one, but I do know about this. It's called Tuesdays with Bill, and people send in from all over the world their questions for Bill Nye, and then mm -hmm. he responds to them. Oh, very nice. So let's see what we have here. Does the universe go on forever? Hi, Bill Nye, the science guy. I'm Ellen, the science guy, and I discovered why does space go on forever? Aaron, uh, the science guy, good to see you. Uh, why does space go on forever? That's a great question. That's a deep question and no one really knows the actual answer to that. Maybe you will be the one who figures it out, but near as we can tell, the farther we look into space, farther it seems to go. With that said, we can see that all the stars are moving apart, and so people have figured out that they must have all been at one place about 13.6 billion years ago, and so people can observe light that we believe is 13.6 billion years old. But nobody knows what's beyond that, or if it's even a meaningful question to ask what's beyond that. What would the world be like if there were no world? And so these are deep, deep questions, and the people who think about these questions are called astrophysicists. They study the motion of stars. Physics is the study of motion, and astro has to do with stars. So perhaps you will be an astrophysicist who figures this out. I love that he identifies himself as Aaron the science guy. That's <laughs> so cute. He loves science. <laughs> yeah. Little kids who love science, it's pretty precious. It's very sweet. Now I feel like we're getting into cosmic threat territory. The idea that the stars all started out in one place and they're moving farther apart <laughs> deeply concerns me. Does it? Because <laughs> where are they going? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, this question of what is beyond the edge of space, that mm -hmm. just your brain should then explode, I feel. Yeah, the sheer vastness <laughs> of it, that it's impossible for us to comprehend, is not comforting. Yeah, I mean, there are probably a lot of physicists out there in Big Think's audience who are listening to this, and they're like, what? You know. Now, physics is a study of motion. Yeah. And astrophysics is the study of the motion of stars. Oh. Yeah, okay. that's what I learned. Okay, yeah, I did learn that too. Sorry, there are probably astrophysicists out there who are hearing <laughs> me go, wow, I can't believe, like, my brain is going to explode, and are just like, oh my god. Do you think that they think we're dumb? They may. They may, but With do you think, what's your gut instinct? I think that those astrophysicists are probably glad that anyone's talking about this stuff. But do you think they get together sometimes and they talk about how ignorant 
the general population of the world is. I think they get together a lot and talk about that. I think that's like pretty much all they talk about when they're not writing down equations and... I bet they high five each other. Probably. But I bet it's awkward. Oh yeah, way awkward. I bet they have to try like a couple times to get a good solid hit. Yeah, so and that's where we get back at them because yeah. even though we don't understand astrophysics fully... Yeah. I mean, we know what the word means, or you do. I anyway. know what it means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, broke, I can break it down. We can high five. Let's in do a high five. Awkward manner. Let's do a high five that I bet will be a satisfying, like solid contact. Yeah. First time out. Cool. Do you think we can do yeah, it? Yeah, let's go. All right. Ready? Oh my God. Come on! Perfect right out of the box. Yeah, come on, astrophysicists. Attempt that. Yeah. So, okay, going back to outer space. Sure. Would you go on a, like, a Mars mission if you could? Mars mission, that is tough because that is quite a time commitment. Yeah, I think it's a one-way trip at this point, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm, I would, I don't know. I might be happy to leave that to other people if they can't figure out getting people back real soon. Right. I certainly want to see what they can show us. Look, I enjoyed Breaking Bad because I could watch it. It didn't make me want to create meth. Because if I died on a spaceship going to Mars, I'd be so mad. Oh, that would be lame. I'd be so mad. Yeah, basically your last memories are you're like in a tin can. Yeah. You know, high, high above the, the world. world. Oh my God. Planet Earth is blue and, and there's, there's nothing, nothing I can, can do. Jink, jink, jink. That was our- No, it's two! Oh my God, a double <laughs> high five. Let's All try right. it again. Okay, one more time. Jink, jink, jink. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> That was excellent, and so that we was our it. tribute to David Bowie. That's right. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I think he would have liked it. He would. He I probably would have laughed. I think he would have. Actually, he would have laughed. Yeah, yes. I was gonna say, <laughs> laughed and laughed. Well, I don't know. Is there anything more to say about the infinite blackness of space? It won't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. Do you believe there is life on other planets? But I if do. the universe is that vast, it seems crazy to think that we're the only ones that would have sprouted life like this. Yeah, well actually, the universe, given the vastness of it, ought to sort of prove the like million monkeys theory. So mm -hmm. there ought to be a planet where there's just Campbell's soup. The Campbell's like, soup thing. Uh, there's like an infinite, almost infinite number of planets, right? So every, every impossible that, thing, every combination of everything must manifest Are you somewhere. saying the life form on this planet is Campbell's soup? <laughs> Yeah, maybe. Is it in cans? Maybe. Sure. And there's another planet where the cans say, like, Bamble's soup. And another <laughs> one where they say, like, Blamble's soup. Right. And, and on some of them, those are the life forms. And on others, they're, they're not. They're sure. Inert. You know what? I can't say for sure that that's not true. Do you think that there's a planet like Earth with Earth-like people, but they're just weirdly slightly different in some way? Like, you know, on Star Trek... Right, they have, just have like weird notches on their nose or something, <laughs> and that was the only thing. Yeah, no, maybe. Yeah, I mean, like, so here I'm going to get into like, a reference, yeah. an actual reference. Here we go. E. O. Wilson, the biologist, was here, and he was saying something about how life ought to evolve on any relatively similar planet, somewhat along the lines as it did here. You should mm -hmm. go from invertebrates to vertebrates. You should have eyes that start on the front and then slowly move to be able to see more peripherally because the functions that those things serve 
are necessary when you're looking around for food and trying to find stuff. So we absolutely, should, yeah. What if though? What if the vegetation is different and there's so much food to go around that they don't evolve? Plants, they're not doing much. You know, they're not. They're really, they're really not. in terms of ambition, not seeing any Mars missions coming from them. They're just because the light is just coming and feeding them, so they have no incentive to here get the, off their asses. Here are the two that I think are the exceptions to that. You got your Venus flytrap, of yes. course. Who's like, I eat bugs. I'm not just gonna wait for some water to fall on me. And then I also think things like ivy and kudzu that are like relentless world domination. Right. Like ivy, <laughs> like trying to smother a building <laughs> to where people are like, I don't know, just cut it away from the windows. What are we gonna do? That's pretty amazing to me. But why with, with <laughs> Venus flytraps, why? They're in, aren't they in tropical places? And pitcher plants too. They're, it's I like think. there's plenty of water, yeah. as far as I know, and food. What do they do? They got bored. Weird. Yeah. Are there big Venus flytraps that get so big they can eat like a bird? I think there are some. I don't know if they are actually Venus flytraps, but I know there are some like animal eating plants that can probably eat right. like a hummingbird. Oof. This is botany here, guys. You're hearing botany. This botany. is the sound of it. And ornithology. This is also. the sound of botany. <laughs> a little bit, a little sousson of ornithology. <laughs> well, we closed that topic up pretty Ooh, good. I think we did. And that's it for mixtape number three, year one of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Everyone out there who is liking what you're hearing and you want to let others know about it, the easiest way you can do it is to go onto iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen and rate or review the show. I say it all the time, but that's because it's really, really important. It makes a major difference in terms of who finds us. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. Hope to see you then.